0: We are in the last couple of weeks in our series called The Birth of Christ as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we will continue to do so. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage where we see a couple different reactions to who Jesus came to be. So I firmly believe that we are living in an age of the church in America where people are biblically and theologically illiterate. And as a result, completely misunderstand and misrepresent the faith that they proclaim to believe. And let me clarify what I mean by that. There's an epidemic of people in the church who say they are Christians, but don't understand the basics of what the Bible teaches and how to be truly saved and thus are living in grave danger of actually not being saved. And I don't say this actually from judgment, but from a heart of love to see these people come to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see where I get this is from a study that was done this year by the Cultural Research Center out of Arizona Christian University which found that America American churches or American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation can be earned perspective. So let me hear what they found. 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians. 52% of those people accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. So I want you to see this quote for a second. What is even more shocking is that huge proportions of people who attend churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior, nonetheless believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. That includes close to half of all adults associated with Pentecostal, 46%, mainline Protestant, 44%, and evangelical churches, 41%. It is a much larger share of Catholic 70%, that embrace that view. So in other words, in churches whose official beliefs and teachings teach that salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, a surprisingly large amount of people from those churches believe in a Christianity that is exactly the opposite. You see, these results are astounding and staggering for those of us who are in church leadership. What this means is that in a church like ours, because we would classify ourselves as evangelical, we could potentially have 40% of our people not understand the basic tenet of our faith and embrace beliefs that are contrary to the Bible. And so we have to ask the question, how does this happen? Personally, I believe this happens more in churches where the Bible is not taught as the word of God. In other words, that the Bible is taught as infallible and authoritative coming directly from God himself which is what we teach here at Portland Community Church but mostly what I think has happened is that people have given into the winds and whims of our culture buying into lies of Satan about human capability to make themselves right with God and then twisting the purpose of the ministry of Jesus and why he came You see, many people believe that Jesus came to make them wealthy or he merely came to make them happy and give them a comfortable life or that he's associated with a particular political party or political movement. And truly, in our day and age, I've seen Jesus associated with every single political party or movement, but they have to twist him and what he teaches in order to make it fit. But it's very important to understand something here. Jesus made it very clear that he was the only way to be made right with God. And so to misunderstand him is to miss the opportunity to truly know God. And so to understand him, we have to go back and look at why he came and how the unraveling of the story in Luke shows us that. And so again, many times humans often incorrectly identify why Jesus came and thus believe in a false Jesus. You see, it's far too easy to do it because we can tend to not stand on firm ground, but rather trust, again, in the winds and the whims of our culture. And instead, Jesus came to be the Savior, Redeemer, and the Son of God dwelling among us. So let's see how the characters in our story today identify Jesus in these ways. And we're going to consider three reasons For why Jesus came. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to go through verses 22 through 52. So while you are turning there, I'm just going to give you a quick little background. Luke writes like a really good investigative reporter using eyewitness testimonies to bolster what he's writing. But he also uses some unique stories, particularly the three that we're going to look at today that no other gospel writer uses. Because he's introducing themes to us in these chapters that will carry over throughout the entirety of his two works, the the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Mainly that Jesus is the long-awaited and promised Davidic king who is going to reign forever. And that these stories we're going to cover today will show the significance of Jesus and who he really is more than just a mere human being. So let's begin. We're going to start in verses 22 through 23. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. You see, the purification rites that are referenced here are two separate ceremonies, one for the child and one for the mother. For the child, it was about the male firstborn who opened the womb of the mother. And so these boys were made to be, were, were to be made holy, consecrated to the Lord, according to Exodus 13, and that these sons then belonged to the Lord. But for the mother, she was actually, according to the law, ritually unclean for seven days after giving birth to a son. So she needed to come to be, to be made ritually clean again and to offer a sacrifice. Verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. I want you to keep something in mind here. The requirement here that they are told to offer is specifically identified in the passage from the Old Testament that says this is the offering for someone who is poor. So this is, again, showing that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy people. They were poor. And it highlights for us how Jesus was not born into wealth or prestige or high social status, which is what most people would expect of a kind of character like Jesus. He came from unexpected circumstances to flip everything upside down. And so while these rituals and rites may seem like normal things happening for a Jewish family at this time, Luke is accenting the importance here, showing how God fulfilled his promise by bringing about Jesus. It shows that Mary and Joseph are continuing to be obedient to what God has called them to do, to be the parents of this Messiah. But in the midst of the mundane and the ordinary of these purification rites, God does something extraordinary. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So, Simeon is not exactly stated as a prophet, but he really is acting like one, and he truly may be one, but it's just not explicitly stated in the passage. First of all, Luke describes him as righteous and devout. Righteous means that he behaved well towards people and he was upstanding before God. But devout means that he was careful and about religious duties. He cared deeply about the things of God. And so he represents faithful and expectant Israel awaiting their redemption. While, and while there were many who were unfaithful at that time, who Luke is going to introduce to us throughout the rest of the book. But here, Simeon is described as waiting for the consolation of Israel. This was another term to describe the coming of the Messiah. The word consolation here in Greek is paraklesis, which means encouragement or comfort. Specifically, he was looking for Israel to be set free from their oppressors, the Romans. The coming of the Messiah would come after great suffering of of Israel, for Israel, on behalf of, or from their oppressors. And so by setting them free, he would bring great comfort. But it was also this looking ahead to the kingdom of God with the Messiah as king and God totally delivering Israel. But again, Luke describes Simeon in an interesting way by saying that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And so again, while he's not listed specifically as a prophet, this is how prophets were typically described. And so what's happening here is a unique and special revelation from the Lord that Simeon is getting. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so at this point, we don't have an indication of how old Simeon was at the time, but we can assume, based on the way he talks through the rest of this passage, that he had reached an old age. And again, this is very indicative of what a prophet would be able to do, to have the Spirit directly speak to him. But it's used by Luke here to remind us that these events are not ordinary, but they are pointing to something extraordinary that is going on. Verse 27. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required. So the Spirit moves Simeon to come to the temple at just the right time to meet Jesus and fulfill what God had promised him. You see, there are times in the Bible when the authors are making it obvious that the events happening are no mere coincidence. And this is one of those times. So at the exact moment that Mary and Joseph are coming to the temple to do these purification rites, Simeon comes to the temple as directed by the Spirit. You see, this is something only God could have done. God is on the move. God is doing something special. There are no such things as coincidences with God. Verse 28. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And so he appropriately refers to God as sovereign. And this is not some sort of determined fatalistic thing, God's sovereignty, but it's God's control over human choice and his rule as king over what he has created. So there's some other things that, interesting things that Simeon says here. First, he mentions how God fulfilled what was promised him by having him see the Messiah before he died. And now he can die knowing that the Messiah has actually come. And he uses wording here in that second line of verse 29, where it gives us this concept of being set free, not merely passing away, as if he's been set to a long task, a long mission, and he's now been released from it. And so again, this is what gives us the concept that Simeon is likely an older man. Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You see, Jesus' coming for Luke is the dawning of salvation, and Simeon attests to that here. For many Israelites at this time, they believed the Messiah would merely be a conquering king, and that that was their salvation, a salvation from their political oppressors. But Jesus came for an even greater salvation for the soul's Of people. You see, the angel Gabriel had told Mary to name this baby Jesus, which is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. But it's extremely significant what Simeon is talking about here because God has prepared this salvation in the sight of all nations. It's not just for Israelites, but it's for the whole world. Simeon mentions it again and says that this salvation will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Remember earlier that Simeon looked forward to the consolation of Israel, not the Gentile nations. So thus Simeon is actually getting a picture from God here in this moment of god 's full purpose to bring about salvation for all people in the world. This would have been an outrageous and scandalous thought for the Israelites of that day, and so the meaning here is as apparent: a light reveals what is hidden in the darkness. And so this salvation is to be a light of hope to the entire world and to reveal the true nature of God as wanting to see all people saved. And so this last line, the glory of your people Israel, it does not mean that Israel is somehow better, is going to be made better because of this, but simply that is because this is a fulfillment of what God has been telling Israel for centuries that he was going to do. Verse 33 The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And so they're continuing to marvel at what's happening, how God continues to reveal himself to them about who Jesus is. They're marveling at this stranger, this man, Simeon, total stranger to them, that he would know all of what God has been telling him, what the angel Gabriel has been telling them about who Jesus was going to be, that he would just come up to them and then proclaim the Messiah. Out of nowhere, it seemed. Again, this is all work of the Holy Spirit. And make sure you understand something. This marveling is not a sign of weakness for Mary and Joseph. Rather, it's to further support what they've been told, to further confirm for them to keep away any sort of doubt. You see, it's in statements like these that make me believe that Mary is one of the sources for Luke's writing because it seems like a detail that she would include, that God continued to be faithful to her and Joseph to confirm who Jesus was, and to keep them focused on the task that was ahead of them. Verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So Simeon's not only saying positive things. He takes a moment to bless the family, and then he turns to Mary and gives her a prophecy. Many will fall or rise In Israel because of her son, and they're going to speak against him. Many people are going to stumble over Jesus because he's not going to be the Messiah they expected or wanted. You see, the kind of kingdom that Jesus will bring in will not be universally supported by the Israelites, and this should absolutely be a grievous thing. You see, by calling him a sign, Simeon means that Jesus will point to the action of God. But it's going to be spoken against and disbelieved by, the, by many Israelites. Verse 35. So that the, hearts, the, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. As a result of Jesus' ministry, he's going to reveal the true states of the hearts of people. And that Jesus' actions as God's signs will reveal whether a person is going to rise into faith or fall into disbelief. See, if people believe in him, then their hearts are right with God. But if people don't believe in him, then their hearts are not truly right with God. But Simeon closes out what he has to say by telling Mary, and I found this fascinating, that her soul will be pierced too. It's a really interesting statement, but it's pointing to the suffering that Jesus is going to endure and that Mary in some way is also going to have her soul pierced in a way. It's pointing to this suffering. Jesus's death will pierce Mary's soul as anyone who has ever lost a child will tell you what it feels like. But in reality, what this means is that there are many people of Israel who will reject him, turn away from him because he suffered on the cross rather than being the conquering king that they wanted. And what this is going to do is going to reveal their true attitude toward him. And they're going to reject him because of this, but they're also going to reject him for our first reason, is that Jesus came to be the savior of all people. See, I want you to notice that Simeon says through the Holy Spirit here that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You see, there were many nations uh, that the Jews of Jesus' day viewed as their enemies, so far away from God that there was no possibility of salvation. But Jesus came to be their Savior too, and Simeon points this out for us here. We may not exactly say this or think this, but by our actions, we show that we don't understand this truth as well sometimes. You see, instead of Jesus being the Savior of the world, we tend to reduce him to a personal choice that we worship, something that is just for us. And so then as well, we, by extension, believe that he's also a personal choice for other people around us as well. But if we really believe that Jesus is the Savior of all people, why are Christians more known for what they are against rather than showing the radical love of Jesus? Why aren't Christians more known for showing people that he is the Savior of the world? And I think it's often because we don't understand how deeply loved we truly are by God, that he saved us at our absolute worst not for what we could muster ourselves to be. You see, this truth is just as scandalous today as it was back then. Jesus came for the worst of the worst, the most broken people, the people we would least expect, the people that we might like the least, the people that we struggle to relate with, the swindlers, the prostitutes, the drug dealers, the gang members, the terrorists, and many more. He came to be their Savior too, and His sacrifice on the cross paid for every single one of their sins, if only they would believe in Him. So I want you to think about who are the people in your life and in your sphere of influence who you would never expect to be a part of the family of God. How can you show them the radical love of Jesus so that they might be saved like he saved you? Let's continue verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. So Anna, is specifically identified as a prophet here. And keep in mind, there were no prophets in Israel for 400 years up to this point. So again, this is showing God is on the move. He's up to something really important. Verse 37, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And so it's kind of astounding that she actually reached the age of 84 in this day and age. You see, life expectancy around then, if a person did reach adulthood because they had a pretty high mortality rate of young children, life expect- expectancy for an adult would have been about 55 years old. And so Luke describes her as having never left the temple. She's worshiping day and night. He's, she's fasting and praying For some reason, God has chosen to keep her alive this long, and I don't think it's an earned thing because of this. But it's possible that this description in the second part of this verse is a bit of a hyperbole, meaning that she might have had a home elsewhere that she would sleep, but then she came back every day to worship, pray, and fast. Regardless, she is being described like Simeon as a righteous and devout person. These descriptions point to a very disciplined and devout woman of God. Verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So she sees the baby Jesus. She comes forward. She begins to speak to everyone around about the redemption of Jerusalem, which is another term for the coming of the Messiah. So earlier, Simeon spoke of the consolation, the comfort of Israel in terms of the Messiah coming to set them free from their oppressors, and they would find great comfort from that. But here, when the word redemption is used, it is the Greek word lutrosis, which means liberation, redemption, ransoming, or releasing. See, it's the concept of God buying the freedom of the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, from their captors to set them free from enslavement. And again, I want you to keep in mind, there's much more happening here than just politics. This is about a deeper spiritual thing going on here. Verse 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. After Mary and Joseph finished these rites, they just go on back home. It's pretty simple, straightforward verse. Verse 40. Luke leaves an interesting notation here for us, and so let's, and he's going to repeat it again, so let's see what he says and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. So he's talking about how Jesus became strong, and he grew. He became, he was full of wisdom, and he's becoming a fully developed human being. But the contrast here is this really interesting phrase. He was filled with wisdom. The grace of God was on him. He's pointing to how unique Jesus is, and we're going to see his wisdom in the next uh, story that we'll look at. But Luke wants us to understand that Jesus' life is marked for something very important. He's developing, he's growing, and spiritually in a way, in a remarkable way. But Jesus also already possesses the qualities that will make him totally unique later in his life as the Son of God. You see, Jesus is under God's care and provision. And God is leading him toward the special end that he has called him to, to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah. But I want us to key back into something Anna said earlier about the redemption of Jerusalem. And this is our second reason that Jesus came. That Jesus came to be the redeemer of his people. So to understand the concept of redemption, we must go back to the Old Testament. Specifically the story of the Exodus. There, God's people are enslaved in Egypt. And what God does by freeing his people from Egypt is that he is redeeming them. And so he is purchasing them. He's buying them as slaves and setting them free as a result to live in the land that he had promised to them. You see, it's a foreshadow of what Jesus would do with us for our sin. It's about restoring his people to fellowship with him despite our sin. You see, this is a concept I try and preach and focus focus on every time that I preach. Believing in Jesus is not mere fire insurance to keep you from hell if you just pray the right prayer. It's about God redeeming and restoring people to fellowship with him. About God bringing people back to a Garden of Eden level of fellowship with him. Remaking us into new people with new priorities and a new heart. So God doesn't do all he does in Christ simply to make you a better moral person, but to make you a redeemed and restored person. Anything and everything you struggle with, he wants to defeat and restore in your life so that you can live in deeper fellowship and relationship with him. You see, no addiction is too tough for him to beat. No depth of depression is too deep for him to pull you out of. No marriage or other close relationship that is broken is, too, is not too broken for him to mend. No hurt is unable to be healed. And no matter what it is, Jesus has come to heal and redeem all of it. So think about it this morning. What do you need to give over to him to redeem? What have you tried to fix yourself rather than trusting in the redeeming work of Jesus in your life? Verse 41. Let's continue. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. So we now fast forward a little bit in time. We see that Mary and Joseph are continuing to show their devotion and obedience to the Lord. Every year, they come up to the Passover festival, to Jerusalem. And all males were actually required at the temple three times a year. So Joseph was required to do this uh, for Pentecost, for tabernacles, and Passover. And we don't have time to go over everything that was involved with Passover. But this was the ultimate celebration of what God did to free Israel from their oppressors, the Egyptians. And it foreshadowed what Jesus would do to free all of us from our ultimate oppressor, sin. But Luke wants to make sure to tell us something that happened when Jesus was 12. A young boy, like a sixth grader in our day. You see, the family went up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. It was their custom. But remember, it's important to note that Jesus is 12 here. It's before he turns 13, which is the age that a Jewish boy would become a son of the commandment or a full member of the synagogue, a man. And it seems it was Jesus' family practice that the whole family would go up to the temple, which actually was not required. It wasn't required for the whole family. Again, Luke is making sure to show us that Jesus is being raised in a devout and pious home that is faithful to God, which is unlike much of what Israel's history has been like to that point. Verse 43, after the festival was over while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. So Jesus stays behind. His parents have no idea that he did this. Verse 44, thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. So they're thinking that he was already with them, but then as they go along the journey after about a day, they realize, oh no, Jesus is not with us. This scene actually reminds me of my, one of my favorite all-time Christmas movies, Home Alone, where the family is on the plane, and they're talking with Kevin's parents and they're asking them questions about, well, did you forget this? Did you forget this? They felt like they forgot something. And then there's that moment of realization for the mom where she goes, Kevin, you know, it's that iconic scene. She just, her eyes are huge. And I I don't know about you, but I would be thinking in that moment, if I was Mary or Joseph and be like, we forgot the son of God. We had one job. This was our only job. Verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. You see, this three days number is likely from the moment they realized that he wasn't with them to the time that they finally found him. I would be freaking out after three days not knowing where my kid is. But then when they find him, he's in the temple with the teachers. He's listening to them. He's asking them questions. So we already know that Jesus is unique because he's the son of God. But as a 12-year-old, he's unique because parents, let's be honest, how often do you find your 12-year-olds talking to adults and asking them questions? I I haven't seen that a whole lot in my time in youth ministry. But it's also surprising to me that someone in that group isn't sitting there thinking, or saying out loud, uh, whose kid is this and why is he just hanging out here? Like, who, I could, this has happened at youth group events before where I'm sitting there and we've got a kid that needs to be picked up and the parents are late. And it's like, uh, whose kid is this? Does anybody know where this kid came from? And I want you to understand something. What's happening here is Jesus is asking questions is about showing a thirst for knowledge. And he's showing how he was, as Luke said earlier, filled with wisdom. Because the teachers are amazed at his answers and his understanding at such a young age. All of this point, again, to the uniqueness of Jesus. Verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, to be honest, I've never lost a kid at a youth event. I have a 100% return home rate as a youth pastor. Very excited about that. But if I were to ever have lost a 12-year-old, I can honestly tell you this is not what I would expect to find. I'd expect them at like the arcade or something, okay? Playing video games. That's what I would expect. But here's Jesus. and And again, this is showing the uniqueness of Jesus. And that he is no mere human. He has a greater purpose for why he came. Verse 49. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. You see, Jesus' statement here shows his devotion to God's ultimate purpose rather than his own family loyalty or even his family's piety. He knew who he was even at this point that he was the Son of God and that he had a greater purpose in his life. You see, there is nothing more important for us than aligning ourselves with the God of the universe and his purpose, even over our own family loyalties. And so even though his parents were very godly people, they still didn't understand what Jesus was talking about here. They still needed to see what it really meant for Jesus to be the Messiah, rather than just based on their own preconceived notions. Verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. But I want you to keep something in mind here. Jesus is not being disobedient to his parents. He was being obedient to the higher calling of his father. See, he was obedient to Joseph and Mary as his earthly parents. But he knew it was more important for him to be devoted to his father, to God. Which is what eventually would lead him to go to the cross to die on behalf of our sins. And Mary is treasuring these things in her heart. She's keeping a careful record of all of these things. Seeing how God fulfilled what he promised when, regarding this boy. And Luke is also inviting us to do the very same thing as his readers. So I want you to notice, to be thinking about this as we study this book. How is God fulfilling everything he said from the earlier parts of the story that he said to Mary and Joseph? Keep watching how these threads connect together throughout this narrative to point to Jesus being the Messiah. So this section closes with Luke telling us that Jesus continued to grow physically, but also in favor with God and man and it's, again, it's about the progress of his growth, progressing towards the reality of what he's going to be. That, yes, he was the perfect son of God, but he was growing and developing as God prepared him for the task ahead, yet he was still sinless. But I want us to make sure of something that we, that we focus on uh, for our reason why Jesus came. This is our third reason, is that Jesus came to be the son of God dwelling among us. See, John 1.14 is an incredibly beautiful verse. It's where the Apostle John wrote, The Word became flesh and his d- made his dwelling among us. You see, the Word, meaning Jesus, became flesh. He took on a human form and he made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling in that passage literally means to tabernacle with us, to pitch a tent among us. You see, for a God to dwell among us shows the care and love that he has for us. He's not a God who merely sits in the clouds judging us or threatening to strike us down if we mess up too much. But a God who came to experience everything that we experience and to live the perfect life that we could not live. He didn't come to make us wealthy or to experience fleeting feelings of happiness. But he came to live among us, die for us on the cross, and rise again to justify us and bring us into a new life with him. That's why he came, and that's what the Son of God did. One of the scariest passages in all of the Bible is in Matthew 7, 21-23. There, Jesus said, "'Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven.'" Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, the key here is not whether you claim to have believed in Jesus, calling him Lord, or have done, tried to do great things for him in his name. But do you know him? Not know of him or pray a prayer one time when you felt bad about the wrong things that you've done. But do you know him personally? Do you know him as the Bible reveals him to be? Do you know why he came during the season that we celebrate of Christmas? Or is it on the terms of the culture or terms you have created for yourself? As we can see from our passage today, Simeon and Anna really knew who Jesus was. They understood completely because the Holy Spirit revealed him to them. And let me just tell you, the same thing can happen for you. All you must do is ask the Holy Spirit to reveal him to you. Because Jesus came to be near to those who are far away. So are you one of those mentioned in the survey at the introduction that believes you can work your way into heaven by simply being good enough? The fact that Jesus even came to dwell among us is a direct assault on that idea. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. All so that we would be saved, redeemed, and restored. And so if you are realizing this morning that you have misunderstood something about Jesus, look in your Bible. Look at it and read it. Read the Gospels. Turn to its truth, asking God to lead you to understand what the truth is. And don't let the end of this year go by without considering the truth of why Jesus came. Ask God to reveal himself to you as he truly is, not what culture says, not what some other religion says or what secular scholarship says he is. And let us remember why he came is that Jesus came to be the savior, redeemer, and the son of God dwelling among us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you came to be all those things for us on our behalf, things that we could not have possibly done on our own effort. God, I pray that we would come to you as you revealed yourself to be. God, not how we make you out to be, not how we want you to be, but God, who you really are, our Savior, our Redeemer, and the Son of God to dwell among us. God, thank you for your incredible love that you came to dwell among us. God, not to yell at us and tell us how awful we are but God to die for us because we knew how awful we were we know our sin and so God we pray this morning that we would come to you and say Jesus I need you I need you to be my savior I need you to be my redeemer because I can't do it myself so Jesus, I pray that we would do that and come to you and look to see, to know you for who you really are. And we pray this in your name. Amen.